Well, I'll wait a moment. Now that the kids are gone, we can talk about them behind their backs. So uh, we can tell them, I, I would never tell this to their face, but we really love our kids here. So, um, okay, anyway, um, our sermon series is called Scale the Mountain. We're in the book of Psalms, and our psalm this morning is Psalm 67. So why don't you turn there in your Bibles? We're going to read that together. I'll give you a moment to get there if you're following along on your own. To the choir master, with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. I think that it can be hard when we hear about tragedies and sadness, like the passing of a dear friend, to come to a psalm like this that's so full of joy and say, how can that be? How can it be that we can read things like, let the nations be glad and sing for joy? And yet, I think this is the exact thing that we need to hear when tragedy strikes. Often, when we're in our deepest sorrows, we forget the joy that we have in the Lord and the hope that we have in the Lord. I don't want to say this to minimize anybody's pain or to, uh, to make this a, a small thing, I think all these things are real and hard and messy and a result of a living in a fallen world. It's not helpful to minimize those things, but rather, in honor and memory of Misty, let's remind us of this hope, that death is not the end. In the midst of our pain and sadness, we can fix our eyes on Christ, our Savior and Deliverer, and hope for the resurrection that is to come when all of us, after our bodies have died, we'll get a new body and be raised into eternal life with the Lord. And may the Lord give us strength to press on during this time. I also want to say, if you're grieving or if you are suffering, you don't have to be a, a member of this church. You can talk to us. We'd love to talk to you and walk with you through this pain. These are hard things. So please reach out to our elders, reach out to our deacons, our shepherding team, our staff team. We would love to talk to you. Um, there are some emails on the on the screen, you can go back through the live stream and look, or just talk to us after service, and we'll, we'll make an appointment. But uh, let's pray one more time before this sermon starts and we dive into our text. Lord, we thank you that um, you are king over all the nations, and that we can worship you, that we can have joy. We thank you for Misty's life. We pray that you would give hope and help for grieving families and friends. Lord, we thank you for your saving power, for the gospel, and we anticipate the new creation that is coming, where we will all be freed from the bondage of the fall, from the bondage of sin and sadness and death, and uh, live eternally with you in the new heavens and the new earth. But until that day, would we press on, and would you give us strength? In Jesus' name, amen. 
Before we begin, I want to remind you of our sermon series. It's called Scale the Mountain. The mountain is where um, Jerusalem was, where God's temple was, was, where people would worship God. And scale is an acronym, and this is how we interpret the Psalms. It stands for story. We look at the grand story narrative of the Psalms. C stands for Christ, because every psalm is about him. A stands for affections, our inner self, and the psalms shape our inner self to worship the Lord. L stands for love, love the Lord, love our neighbor through loving God's law and obeying God's law. And E stands for exaltation. The end goal of all the psalms is worship of the one true God. And this is the sermon outline for today. Let the nations be glad and praise the Lord for his blessing, his salvation, his guidance and judgment, his end times harvest, and what are the implications of these for today? The last one is just kind of the wrap-up, but I thought I'd put it up there. Um, And I also want to say, this is my last time preaching before you guys this summer, and it's been a privilege and an honor. A lot of seminary students don't get opportunities to do this and don't have a congregation willing to give opportunities to do this. So I I just really appreciate it, and thank you for suffering with me. Um, uh, It's a huge blessing. And I also want to say about our text this morning, this text is foundational for the mission and vision of City Hope. So Josh, when you watch this to grade my, grade my class, I'm sorry, you don't get to preach this one. Um, I get this one. You can preach at a different time. Um, anyway, I just wanted to say that this is very foundational for our vision and our mission at City Hope. And actually, I want to look at those real quick. Um, so this is our... I get vision and mission mixed up. They kind of are similar. So these, these are on the website. You can read these if you want. City Hope Fellowship is a multicultural worshiping community in Muncie, Indiana. We're a diverse people passionate about the hope found in Jesus. And we seek to share that good news through relational evangelism, radical acts of justice and mercy, and the multiplying of gospel-centered churches. Let's go to our next statement. We say this every week. At City Hope Fellowship, we seek to be a diverse people, saved by Jesus, centered on Jesus, and sent by Jesus to extend the hope and fellowship of God to our city. You see the multicultural vision in both of these statements. And this psalm is part of that vision. We want to live out this reality that is testified to throughout the scriptures in this church. So I hope that today, as we unpack this text, that you will experience a little bit of that reality from God's word. And this text opens um, with a blessing, and not just any blessing. It refers back to a very special blessing in the Old Testament called the Aaronic Blessing, because Aaron gave it, so it's Aaronic. That's why it's called that. Um, This is in Numbers 6. You've probably heard this. There's a song, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. You probably heard that song. That's this. So let's read that together. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying... Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus shall you bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. This was the blessing that Aaron and Moses gave to their people before they went into the promised land to go establish the tabernacle and worship God. And actually, it's really interesting. In Numbers 7, which comes right after this, it's all about the tabernacle. So the Bible never quotes scripture out of context. And so when it uses this, it's about worshiping God. That's the context of this text. 
That's super interesting and not only cool, but helps us understand that the worship context of this is tabernacle worship where God's presence was with his people when they were in the promised land. But did you notice that in our psalm, it's not only to Israel who gets the blessing. What does it say? It says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Okay, so that's, but in the original text, remember, this was given to Israel, but it says that your way may be known on earth. You're saving power among all nations. This is interesting, right? Imagine you are an Old Testament Israelite and you hear one of the priests, they're like walking you through this psalm and you're talking to your friend, you're like, hey, Joseph, Joseph, this is really interesting. I thought the blessing was for me and you and, you know, our brothers and sisters here. This is weird. And the other friend says, yeah, what the heck, Abe? I thought we get the land. I thought we get the blessing. What the heck? And then Abe says, what about the Egyptians? They're the nations. They, like, enslaved us. They get the blessing? That, that doesn't make sense. And then Joseph says, and the Canaanites, they get the blessing? They, they worship false gods. They're our enemies. What the heck? I, I don't know, Joseph. I've heard of faraway lands like Cush and Greece and, you know, Babylon. They're coming for war. Do they count? Do the nations really get to be glad? How could they hear about the Lord? I think we live in a globalized society today where we think of the nations as like the picture on Instagram of the beautiful place in like, like if I think about Greece, I think about the beautiful beaches and, you know, really great food. I don't think about, you know, Alexander the Great coming to squash you. Um, but th that's what the people of this time would have thought. The nations were your enemies. Israel and Judah were tiny, tiny kingdoms in, in the ancient Near East. Nations didn't mean democratically organized societies. Those didn't really exist anyways until the French and American revolutions, so there are almost always kings with an iron fist, with some sort of generalized piece of land with large groups of families living together. That's what the nations were. And so it's important that when we think of the nations, God's going to bless those people. Those people. We have kind of a glamorized view of the nations. And if you look at the history of the nations and God's people, it's not great. They're always tempting God's people to worship false idols and to sin and to disobey God. They were their enemies, too. They were always going to war, enslaving Israel and, and, and setting up siege works against Jerusalem. I mean, you read the books of Samuel and Kings, it's just brutal. This is weird. This is actually backwards. But that's the promise of the text, right? The ironic blessing, which is for Israel to worship God in the promised land, is also for the nations. And now that we live in 2023, we kind of see the scope of our world. Our world is huge. We, we just kind of accept this because we're taught global maps and things growing up, but all those nations, does God really mean the whole earth is going to get the blessing? And I think it does. The Aaronic blessing is all about worshiping God in his presence. That's the whole point. And so, when this gets applied to the nations, that means all the nations are promised to worship God in his presence with his face radiating on them in acceptance, right? Like if you stand before God and you're a sinner, you, you are judged, but 
when God's face shines upon you, in this context, it's a blessing. And we know that this blessing in the Old Testament looks forward to a greater blessing to come, right? There's going to be a theme in each of our sections here that the blessings foretold for the nations, the, all the different things in this text foretell a greater blessing that's to come. The ironic blessing, it's not completed yet for sure, but because of the work of Jesus Christ, the new heavens and the new earth are ushered in for his people all around the globe. It's going on right now. That's the future blessing of the psalm that it looks forward to. But the question is, how does this happen? That's our second point, through the Lord's salvation, right? We praise the Lord and we worship him for his salvation. The nations praise the Lord and worship him. This has actually been the promise ever since Adam and Eve and all the Old Testament guys who are our theological and spiritual and all all that heritage that has come to us today has been a promise. Let's look at Genesis 12. It says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. A blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And listen to this. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's been the promise since the beginning. Or what about what Isaiah says? He says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. Make them joyful in my house of prayer. Not just the Israelites, everyone. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather you. I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. God's mind has always been on the ends of the earth, which makes sense. He's the God of the whole earth. Why would he only want a tiny piece worshiping him? He wants the whole thing. And he does that through his salvation. It comes via his saving power. Paul says this in Ephesians. Remember that you, you Ephesian Gentiles included in this letter, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He might create in himself one new man in place of the two. That's Jew and Gentile. One new man, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. Salvation is not just for one group of people. All peoples get God's salvation. It is extended to the ends of the earth, the whole earth. Christ has saved us and delivered us from the serpent. This is the great hope of the gospel, that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation get salvation. And probably when the original audience heard this, when they thought saving power, they thought, permanent deliverance from their enemies. No more suffering, um, no more nations coming in to enslave them and, and persecute them. But 
you know, if you think about this for a sec, if all the nations, right, because all the nations get God's saving power, are saved from God's enemies, then that means there's worldwide peace. That's what's implied in this text. Worldwide peace for all the nations, not just Israel. The whole earth, the whole land is at peace. The whole earth is a kind of promised land. That is the hope of the future. And Israel was waiting for a future time when redemption would finally be accomplished and when they would be delivered from their enemies. And the promise of this psalm is that that gets extended to the whole earth. This is what some people call the eschatological hope. That's a big word. All you, when you think that word eschatological, just think end times, right? This is something that's coming at the end. Israel was looking forward to an end times hope which is the believer's hope for a future time when the Lord would make all things new, whole, and right again. That last new, whole, right again part I took from Chris Holroyd at Westminster uh, Presbyterian Church. Um, he says that all the time. It's just so true in the Bible. I'm going to say that one more time because this can be a hard thing for us to grasp sometimes. End times hope is the believer's hope for a future time when the Lord will make all things new, whole, and right again. This is the salvation all people look forward to. And, you know, we're kind of in that tension right now. Christ has delivered us from the realm of sin and death, and at the same time, we still experience sin and death. And so we experience some of that hope in Christ. But there is going to be a day when there will be no more sin, no more death, and salvation for God's people, not only from sin and death, but from their enemies, will be permanent. And the new heavens and the new earth will come down, and we will worship God free from all those things. That is a wonderful joy, and it's the joy for all peoples, all nations worshiping God rightly and truly. That's the hope for everybody. Everybody's invited. And that's why our City Hope vision is the way it is. It's not just for Muncie, even. Although in Muncie, we've got a lot of different kind of people here, right? But every group of people in the city, the hope is offered to them. That's why... Our mission is about relational evangelism, radical acts of mercy and justice. It's to bring people into God's church because God loves them and cares for them and has sent his son to die for them. That's why our vision and mission is the way it is. Okay, let's recap a little bit. We've talked about God's blessing on all people. We've talked about God's salvation, and we worship him for these things. Now we're going to talk about God's guidance and judgment. This is Verse 4, let's reread this. And this verse is right at the center of the psalm. There's a lot of emphasis placed on this verse in the psalm. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. It says we should be glad and sing for joy. Why? Because of God's judgment and guidance. These two functions, judgment and guidance, are functions of a king. In the ancient world, there were no three arms of the federal government keeping each other in check. There's just the king. And what he says goes. You know, there's no judicial, ex- executive, legislative. There are just rulers, kings and queens, emperors, empresses. Those, those are the people who would get their will done, right? When we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, we are asking the Lord's will as a king to be done in our lives. Or think of Solomon, right? Solomon was God's king, and he was in charge of building the temple, and so he gave wisdom and guidance in the land through the Proverbs. And he wrote things, and he made judgments in his courts. 
This is what First Kings says about Solomon when he made a difficult but wise judgment. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. The role of the king is to guide and lead their people. So I'll put this one other way, um, because I really want you to see that this is about God being king. In the Psalms, they will often, the psalmist will often write two lines that mean the same thing in a row. So in verse 2, it says that your way may be known on the earth and your saving power among all the nations. Some, it could be tempting for us, because we don't read Hebrew poetry all the time, to think those are two different things, but they're actually talking about the same thing. And so these two lines right here, you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth, those are about God's kingship, God's rulership, his leadership. And both those lines inform the theme. The psalm is saying, you, O Lord, are king. You alone are king. You guide the nations on the earth. And in every sense of the word, you are just and righteous. And you, all all holiness is, and any good things we do are reflected upon you. God is king. His way happens. He can't, anything he does, anything he declares cannot not happen. This is why we praise God and God alone. And I've mentioned a couple times that we don't really know why this is good news because we're not in the cultural context of ancient Israel. Um, I think sometimes we don't realize our need for a good king because we're just removed from that context and we don't suffer at the hands of merciless rulers. So I want you guys to listen to this quote. This is uh, from an Assyrian ruler named Ashurbanipal. The Assyrians oppressed, uh, oppressed Israel and, and were one of their big enemies in the Old Testament. Um, so this may be the kind of person that they had in mind when they sang about a king, right? God is a different kind of king, but this is the kind of king they were exposed to. Um, this, is, this is a hard quote. This is a little violent, so if you have children, maybe cover their ears for a second. This is what he said. I built a pillar. So Ashurbanipal, uh, he conquers a city, and this is, what he, this is how he boasts over the city he conquers. I built a pillar over against the city. I flayed all the chief men who had revolted. I covered that pillar with their skins. Some I walled up within the pillar. Some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes. I cut off the limbs of the officers. He goes on to talk about how he would cut off more limbs, gouge out their eyes. He made pillars out of their body parts and killed them in horrible, horrible ways. I'm not even going to read the rest of the quote, but you get the picture. This is the kind of king that was around when the psalm was written. This is the way the nations are. They're brutal, savage, evil, and wicked. During the first Christian councils, after Constantine converted, right, this was when our Christian, our fathers, had a chance to come and arrive to, to meet together really for the first time. They would often arrive tortured and maimed for the sake of Christ, missing limbs. This is human nature. And this is when people get to power unchecked. This is the kind of king and ruler they become. In our own city, we have unjust landlords and drug lords preying on the most vulnerable in our city to keep them in cycles of poverty and dependent on them. 
Women and children abandoned and neglected and abused and violence that leaves people bleeding in the streets. I don't like staying on this point, but we don't always realize it because our lives are so comfortable that the reason the nations praise God for his kingship is because the kings of the earth are wicked. Romans 1 says this about the sinful condition of man. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. They're inventors of evil. Think of that, inventors of evil. All the evil things that are in our world. Someone invented those. All the ways of killing and enslaving. A disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That they deserve to know God's righteous degree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They do not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Why do we praise God for his kingship? Well, for a lot of reasons. God is good, he's holy, he's righteous. Also, the kings of the world are wicked. And they crush the poor and the vulnerable and those who don't have favor with the king. Our God is different. He is merciful. He is kind. He is holy. He judges the peoples with equity. That's justice. Everybody's on a level playing field. It doesn't matter. You can't bribe God because he owns everything. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. This is good news for Israel, who is constantly being trampled by other nations. He guides the nations with truth and justice. Can't get out of things because you have money or lawyers or favors or whatever. God is just. He's all-powerful, and he uses that power in a way that is always right. In everything he does, he's always right. And there's an end times side to this judgment as well. We still see today these unjust rulers, big and small, all over the world. And I think we talked about the global scope of our knowledge. We see it even more now that we see the whole world. And we have more ways of distracting ourselves from that thing, but we also see more of it. But one day, this judgment that happens will be final, and Christ will come back to vindicate his righteousness. In that day, we will wait eagerly, praying, your kingdom come, O Lord, because God is our king. And Christ is also our hope for that end times judgment, because we're not perfect either, and he has taken our wickedness and our shame and our sin and laid it on himself. Isaiah says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, our being God's people, right? He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, God is just, and he takes care of our sins in a just way. He bears the punishment for us. He is merciful and a just king at the same time. That's why we rejoice in the Lord. Okay, we're on our final point now. We're going to talk about the end times harvest. This is what we praise God for, his end times harvest. Remember, I said earlier, all these points have a, an end times bent to them. 
It's not just about the here and now, but it's about the here and now and the future all at once. We're going to talk about this in just a sec. Let's read verses 6 through 7 again. The earth has yielded its increase. Increase just means harvest. The harvest is here. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Friends, this is farming language. This is weird. This is foreign to a lot of us. But when the earth yields its increase, that's just saying the harvest is here. The grain is ready for picking. The fruit is on the trees. The harvest is ready, says the psalmist. But what does this mean? I thought we were talking about God's blessing on the nations. Wow, that was weird. Okay, we were talking about God's blessing on the nations just now. Why is it talking about the harvest? Well, it has to do at least with the nations, because that's the context of the psalm. It has to do with the ends of the earth fearing God, and also has to be about blessing. So what is it? Well, I think it's a double meaning. On the one hand, the psalmist is praising God for all his provision for the nations through food, through real harvest food. The annual cycles of harvest God provides for all the earth, and especially his people. Um, God feeds people from the earth. And there will be a day in the future when the earth actually yields the fruit it's supposed to. Under the curse, the ground is hard to work, and our labor has never produced the fruit we quite want. This has been true since the fall, and it will be true till Christ comes back. Unfortunately, work is hard. It's exhausting and depressing and, and boring sometimes. But I think it also has another meaning, and it's referring to the final gathering of God's people from among the nations. So I'll say that again. It's also referring to the final gathering of God's people from among the nations. This is a theme in the prophets and the other Psalms, right? Let's look, for example, at Isaiah 27. We've been in Isaiah a lot today. Um, it says, In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain of Jerusalem. If you want to read more examples of this in the prophets, go to Ezekiel 34. It's another, another example of this motif where the harvest is being used to represent God's people being brought back by God into the promised land to experience his final joy. That's what Isaiah was talking about. That's what Ezekiel talks about. I think that's what our psalm talks about, too. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew. Uh, yeah, there we go. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest! is plentiful. The laborers are few. That's a synonym for our word increase, right? The earth has yielded its increase. The harvest is plentiful. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord to send the, la to send the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And then just a few verses later, he says this. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? We talked about the nations praise God for his kingship. And when Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, he's announcing his kingdom has arrived. 
When our psalm says the earth has yielded its increase, it's talking about God's people once and for all being delivered from their enemies and being brought into his blessing. Our psalm circles effortlessly back to the blessing of Aaron at the beginning, right? That's the blessing. It was right before Israel entered the promised land. They get to go and worship him. Now Jesus is saying the final version of this is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. And what does he do? He goes and heals the sick and drives out demons. And he preaches, uh, they, they go and heal the sick, drive out demons, and preach the gospel. This is end times language. The enemy is being driven out. There's no more sickness, no more death. Truth reigns. The enemy, sin, death, and Satan, is being dri- driven out to make way for God's kingdom. Just like God in our psalm establishes himself as king and demands worship, here Jesus does kingly acts and sends out his disciples to establish his kingdom. And you see the promise of the earth yielding its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. With the kingdom comes the blessing we've already talked about. And Jesus says the harvest is plentiful now right now. That means that Jesus has already made a way for Aaron's blessing to come to his people. That means Jesus has brought salvation from the present evil age. It means Jesus is king over the nations, and we should praise him and worship him for that. That means Jesus has ushered in the great end times harvest, whereby all God's people will be brought home and delivered from sin and death, and all the evil rulers. That's what this means. One commentator says this. His name's J.A. Moiter, if you want to look it up. He says, The praiseworthy goodness of God is seen not simply in outstanding deliverances, but equally in the providence of ordinary annual mercies. This is like the harvest. The blessing is seen first as an earnest of greater blessings to come, and then, since harvest is a metaphor of the world, gathering an earnest too of the harvest, embracing the ends of the earth. A gathering from the ends of the earth that's happening. This is the event the prophets and the poets looked forward to. In the Old Testament, it's here. It's happening. It's going on right now. The kingdom of heaven is going on right now. At the crux of all of human history, Jesus Christ was incarnated. He lived a sinner's he, he, he lived a sinner's life sinlessly in the body, and he died a criminal's death, and he rose from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father. He has been bodily made king over all the nations, and all of this means that he is bringing in people from every tribe, tongue, and nation into the fold of God. That was the plan of God from eternity's past and is now. The nations are glad. They are glad because Christ has established his church. This is the great harvest of the nations. And so, what are the implications of this? On my final point, we've talked about the blessing, the salvation, the kingship of the Lord, and the earth yielding its increase. And all these things God is worthy of worship for, and we ought to worship him for. Well, I think the implications are too numerous to count, but I'll give you three. One is for missions and evangelism. Why do we send out missionaries? because the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. We need people to go out and bring people into the fold. God has his people out there. That's our hope. 
The fuel for our mission is worship in the nations. That's the whole point of the psalm. It's all about worship. In America is a nation, by the way. Our Presbyterian church planning coordinator, he told me that the Midwest is the 10th most unreached place in the whole world. That's crazy. By, by some metrics. I don't know how they measure that. Um, but you and I are in an unreached place in a lot of places. There's a lot of people here who, who don't know the Lord and who have never heard about the Lord. And more and more people are growing up not hearing about the Lord and don't know the gospel. So that encourages us to go share our faith with our neighbors. And it also encourages us to send missionaries all over the world, right? We should honor our campus missionaries and honor the missionaries that we send to different places in the world because they are doing the Lord's work. God has a harvest that he has made. Second is diversity. The world loves the idea of diversity, and it's in our mission statement. We've been talking about it today, and this is really popular in our culture. It'll probably be popular for a couple more years, but I think the non-Christian world gets diversity wrong. They see diversity as a solution to social problems in order to propel social progress. The problems with this are many, but when you do this, it ends up using your neighbor as a means to an end for social progress. And then when our goals change, our thoughts about diversity change too. It's ever-changing. The world is ever-changing. And the way of the world is... is I don't know what I was going to say. I lost my train of thought. <laughs> you get what I'm saying. You get it. This is not true for biblical diversity. The Bible tells a different story. Diversity is not a means to an end for some, whatever that end may be, but it is the result of something. Diversity is the result of God's saving work among the nations. The end times harvest, the very thing that brought you and me into the fold of God is the result of God creating his multi-ethnic church. That doesn't mean we don't work toward it, right? We don't work to love our neighbors from different cultures. But this is the secret about our mission, right? In one of our mission statements, we say we're seeking to be diverse and multicultural, and the other one says we are multicultural. How can, how can that be? That's the secret. The church already is multicultural, and it always has been. That's the secret. I'm letting you guys in on the secret. All over the world, the church is, being, is worshiping God in many languages, people who look way different from each other and who have way different cultures and who think about the world differently but believe the same thing. That's the secret. That's the secret to our mission and our vision. And because of that, we can't fail, right? Even if our local body never looks quite the way we want it, and I think every person you know, probably has a different idea about what every local body should look like. The church looks exactly like God wants it to because it's the result of his saving power. And it's not just all nations, but it's all times too. Our brothers and sisters go all the way back to the time of Adam and Noah and Abraham and spread to every corner of the world. The church is more diverse than you could ever imagine. More diverse than you could ever imagine. And it's united by one thing, Jesus Christ. 
That's why we have one line about being a diverse people and three lines about being saved, centered, and sent on Jesus. Every single one of us worships God in our own language, but we all worship one God. That's what unites us. And my final point is joy. That's the final implication. Deep, deep joy. Do you hear how saturated this psalm is with happiness? May God be gracious to us and bless us. That's happy language. Make his face shine upon us. God is happy toward us. We get to know his ways. The praise and worship of all peoples falls off our lips. These are happy words. The nations are glad and sing for joy. That is the theme of the psalm. We fear God. We're in awe of him. These are happy words, friends. And I think that makes sense. You know, this has been a sad week. This is a sad week. But the reason we can talk about our joy in the Lord and be sad even though we don't feel that joy, maybe today or this week or this month or this year, we live in the overlap of the ages. On the one hand, the age of death and sin and evil is upon us. And on the other hand, we have been saved and the kingdom of God has been ushered in. I think I said this is a similar takeaway a couple weeks ago, but it just keeps coming up in my thinking and as I study the Psalms, it's there. The reason we can talk about our joy and still be sad at the same time is because there will be a joy, a day when our joy will be complete. I don't want to pretend that one sermon or one sermon series or one moment in your life is going to take away your sadness. That's just, it's not reality. Sorry. But I can remind you of the joy we actually will and can experience and the joy we believers share in Christ. And If you are not a Christian or you're watching online, you're just thinking about this thing, you don't know, I want to invite you to come share this joy with us. And the way you do that is by repenting of your sins, turning from your sinful ways and following the Lord. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to follow a script. There's nothing you have to do. Just trust the Lord. Don't harden your heart. The Lord cares for you, and it is a great joy to worship him. It's a great joy to be part of this congregation, to be a part of the Lord's diverse church all over the world and to experience his saving power. For all eternity, we get that. Come experience God with us. He can turn even the most wicked sinner into a holy saint. Trust Christ. And for the rest of us, all of us Christians, brothers and sisters, who is most, if not all of us, we must remember that we have to fight for joy. That joy comes with worshiping Christ and even when we don't feel it, Sometimes it just feels like a huge battle. We may only feel a sliver of it. But, you know, we're Presbyterian, so it's only right that I end on the Westminster Larger Catechism. This is the first thing they say. My wife and I will often repeat this to each other after, before we go to bed. So, uh, what is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. Every man, woman, child who speaks any language in any place on the earth, this is our highest goal. It's not to get to the top of the corporate ladder. It's not to win over one person or another. It's not to achieve my bucket list. It's worship and joy. And the tension we're in is we don't always experience this all the time, and it's never complete. But it's your highest calling. And so, I encourage you, fight for it.
and think about it. And even if that joy, I, I, I say even if, it won't be complete in this life. You will experience happinesses and sadnesses and deep sadnesses and great joys, mountaintops and valleys. It's never going to be complete in this life. Even though our joy may be dim and our worship small, don't fret. Christ has won the day. Let's read this whole psalm together. Why don't you stand? I'll remind you the reason we read our psalms together is because that is why the psalms were given, to be sung and said together corporately in worship. So we're going to skip the little introduction thing. We're going to go right to verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Stay standing. We're going to sing. I'm going to pray. Oh, Lord, thank you that you are king and that you are worthy of our praise. Would we praise you with our lips, with our hearts, with our actions? And would you remind us of our global brothers and sisters who are worshiping you today in different situations? Would you keep us and keep them steady in the midst of sorrow and persecution? You are still king. We will see the fullness of that someday. We praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.